right, everybody, welcome to episode number 65 of the Between the Cracks podcast. I am your host, Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris. Well, Chris, it's only week two of our Hudson Valley Horror Month, and uh, (laughs) somehow we've already skipped one recording date, and I am officially running on fumes tonight, so uh, (laughs) with that said, let's get right to you, little buddy. How are you doing? It doesn't take much for a rescheduled date to uh, take place. For instance, if I happen to be sitting on the couch and the mood strikes me right to lay down, there's a good chance we're not going to be recording that night. <laughs> <laughs> it just gets very difficult. And thanks for asking how I'm doing, Chris. I'm doing well. Um, <laughs> well, I didn't get there yet. <laughs> Enough of the small talk, pal. I'm exhausted and we must get the show on the road. This is probably one of the most disturbing cases we've ever covered. Tonight, Chris, we are discussing the case of the cannibal of Poughkeepsie, the infamous Albert Fentress. Now, what makes the crimes that we're going to be talking about tonight so difficult is the fact that Albert Fentress worked as a school teacher in the city of Poughkeepsie. More specifically, he was a history teacher in high school and then made his way down to the middle school grades. A school teacher is a role model. You're seen by these kids every day, you know, five days a week. You know, they put your trust in you, of course. And that's what makes it so much more just horrific. Absolutely, because, you know, think about it. When you were in school, you know, even as far as being in elementary school, you know, you'll remember what teachers that you liked and which teachers that you didn't like. You know, I remember to this day the teachers I loved and there were ones that I hated. I'm sure the people that were in these classes with this guy probably thought back and said, you know, I always thought there was something off. Before we get into the crimes... Maybe we should give a little uh, background on old uh, Fenty here, from his childhood through adolescence and uh, adulthood. Bud, what you got for us? Fentress was born in 1941 in Brooklyn, and he was the eldest of three. From what we hear, from accounts anyway, his father was tough and believed in physical punishment, but I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that's a pretty common thing in that time. Uh, so I would, I would say... Nothing out of the norm. I mean, from from what we've read here, it looks like it was actually a pretty normal childhood. Uh, at the age of 12, apparently, he moves to Long Island, and he actually is a pretty bright young fellow. He ends up finishing top 10 in his graduating class in high school, and he earns a master's degree in history and education. So... Yeah, Chris, as you mentioned, he did receive his master's degree in education. And unfortunately for us here in the Hudson Valley, Fentress was offered a job in the Poughkeepsie City School District as a high school social studies teacher. Fentress actually made a very good career for himself. He was actually noted as being one of the better teachers in the school district. But all was not well in Fentress's life. From all accounts, he seemed to be somewhat of a loner. He essentially had no love life at all to speak of. He had lived alone, but he did have some hobbies, and one actually being uh, the same as yours, Chris, uh, stamp collecting. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was an avid stamp collector, and I mean, man, we're going back to the 70s here, so remember, you know, there's probably a big thing back then, and I mean, there's probably people out there that still do it today. What the hell do I know? But he did have what some would say was an obsessive personality, and that kind of reared its head in a way that he spoke about his 
get this, Chris, his Cadillac. And he described this event as one of the most depressing of his life. And do you know what that event might have been, Chris? Do tell. When his Cadillac had to go into the shop for repairs. So, I mean, you're looking at that, and that might seem like a small little detail, but, I mean, you listen to that description, one of the most depressing times of my life, and it just being a car going into a shop, that shows you that maybe we're dealing with someone that's not all there. Little did Fentress know that that Cadillac being in the shop was the least of his problems, because it seems that that stamp collection that he adored so much went missing. Albert believed it was some of the local high school students that had broken into his place and stolen it. Not only did he believe that, Chris, he actually took matters into his own hands and went to the district and the administration and basically accused this student of taking it. From all accounts, there was no actual evidence of uh, this high school student have taken it. You know, to make a long story short here, after this kid was accused of stealing the stamp collection, <laughs> his friends took it upon themselves, I guess, to, to enact a little bit of retribution on Fentress. So they went to his house and began to vandalize it. And, you know, I, I do not agree with that in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I should add that in there. You can imagine now with the stamp collection having gone missing, now his house is being vandalized. This only deepened Fentress's rage. Am I right, Chris? You are correct. And yes, once you give kids a reason to harass a teacher, I mean, that's it. They're, they're going to piss you off. But Fentress took it to the next step. So after the harassment and the, and the, the vandalism, his stamp collection getting stolen, he decided that he was going to obtain a gun permit and perhaps defend his house if something happened. And this plays a very big role into uh, what happens next. Let's just start by saying it's crazy how kind of series of events unfold and, and leads to like the ultimate climax here. It's true, Chris. I mean, we start to see, you know, the cracks in Fentress little by little. As we said, he seemed like a loner. And he didn't seem to have a partner of any kind. So he immersed himself in these hobbies that he had, right? Whether it be that stamp collection we mentioned or the Cadillac. So when you don't really have much else going on in your personal life and then someone fucks with your material items that you, you revel in, that can set the wheels in motion where uh, you want to then enact revenge on those that you suspect committed the crimes. And that led into, uh, God, Chris, I mean, I, I want to say opening Pandora's box, pretty much. Yeah, all it takes sometimes is for people like this, with this type of personality, one little thing like that to make them snap. Yep. This was the culmination of all these things kind of reaching their pinnacle. And that pinnacle was reached on August 20th of 1979. And you talk about adding fuel to the fire, Chris, because on August 20th, there was actually this planned, uh, quote-unquote, <laughs> as I've seen written, rumble. So now you know we're talking in the 1970s, because it's not really a term you'd hear today, but it was a fight consisting of a bunch of high school students, whether it be from different schools or whatnot, I can't recall. But uh, it made a huge commotion right within the vicinity of Albert Fentress's home. 
So he woke up from this and he hears all these kids fighting and whatnot. And obviously Albert goes right to the thought that these kids are going to attempt to vandalize or even rob his home. So what he does is grabs his gun and proceeds to keep watch. And that's when Fentress noticed 18-year-old Poughkeepsie resident Paul Masters had wandered into his yard. It was at that point that Albert runs downstairs and confronts Masters. Now, we don't know if Paul was part of the fight that was taking place, but I guess you could assume that he was at least there, being the fact that he was actually in the area and ends up making his way into Fentress's front yard. Now, the weird thing here, Chris, is that when he went to confront Masters, he didn't do it in an aggressive manner. He essentially tried to defuse the situation, ask him if he needed help or whatnot, and he went so far as to even offer for Paul to come inside for a beer. I don't know what the hell was going through Paul's head. These two apparently had no connection, but maybe Paul had known Fentress from the school district or whatnot. But uh, from all accounts, they had no uh, connection to each other. So Paul decides to take him up on his offer and proceeds to go inside Albert's house with him. Part of it could have been because... You know, these kids were running from the police and perhaps he thought, oh, you know, maybe not be a bad idea to lie low, you know, in this guy's house that I know he, he's a teacher in the school district. So maybe he felt comfortable doing that and thought until the, the police are, are out of the way, then I'll leave and, you know, go home. What an astute observation, Chris. I did not even think about that. You're probably right there. With this huge fight that had broken out, there were cops, I'm assuming, all over the place. And it would make perfect sense for Paul to attempt to lay low until uh, everything calmed down. But unfortunately, it became a fatal decision. So once inside, they were talking. Everything seemed pretty cordial at first. And then Fentress then asked Paul if he could go downstairs into the basement and help him move some things around. Everything we hear about Paul is that he was a pretty tough kid. He was in very good physical shape. He was an athlete and whatnot. So Fentress might have played that part up to him where, oh, you look like a strong guy. Can you please help me come downstairs and move some stuff around? And, you know, I'm looking at this Fentress guy and he just looks like a little wimp. So I'm assuming that Paul probably didn't feel very threatened by him at all. Yeah, and you just never know, do you? No, you just don't know. Unfortunately, Paul made the decision to go downstairs with Albert. That's when Albert asked him if he could help him move the items, like we said. Paul had turned his back, and it was at that point that Albert Ventress pulled a gun on Paul, put it to him, and told him to tie himself up. Could you just imagine the shock and the fear running through this poor kid when he turns around and sees that this guy has a gun pointed to his head, and he's stuck in his fucking basement? In the middle of the night, too. Oh, and you're, my God. You're completely helpless. You know, people are sleeping. You're in a basement of someone's house. Meanwhile, the cops are probably just outside because they're looking for the people who, are, you know, who got into a fight. What we're thinking right now, if you just got the backstory up to this point, you're thinking that he either suspects this kid of being involved or being responsible for the acts of vandalism or and the harassment that Fentress has been getting. Maybe he wants to interrogate this kid. You know, who did it? Do you know who did it? That That's what I'm thinking up to this point. Yeah, yeah I mean, you may be onto something there, but you got to think too that 
once you point a gun to a kid's head, I would think pretty much that your teaching career is over. True. And, and we just don't realize, and perhaps even Fentress doesn't realize what he's capable of at this point. But now he's there's no turning back. It's at this point that Albert began to sexually assault Paul. And, and from Fentress's account of it, Paul wanted nothing to do with it, as you could imagine. And this only enraged Fentress more. So, I mean, now we're beginning to see that this guy's not all there. You know, he's upset that Paul is not taking kindly to this assault. And what he does now is so horrifying. I mean, you and I have talked about it throughout the week. It's just, I, and I have not been able to get it out of my head. Uh, it's at this point that Fentress gets more enraged He then proceeds to take out a blade and remove Paul's sexual organs while he is alive, Chris. Even upon reading this and and then saying it aloud right now, it it is beyond beyond disturbing in my eyes. And I, I can only imagine what was going through this poor kid's head. Unfortunately, after this event happened, Paul began to bleed profusely. Albert then left Paul downstairs bleeding, went back upstairs with the genitals in his hands, proceeded to put them in a frying pan with oil and eat them. Can you fucking imagine this? I mean, we went from talking about a middle school teacher who collects stamps and likes his Cadillac to now a sadistic cannibal rapist. It sounds like a horror film. It doesn't sound like something that you would expect a human to actually do to another human. It's at this point, after consuming the uh, genitals, that Fentress proceeds to walk back downstairs where he sees that Paul is still alive. You can imagine at this point, you know, he's probably close to death with the amount of blood that he's lost and whatnot. I believe it was even noted that Fentress shot him one time uh, upon leaving the basement As he went back downstairs, as we said, he saw that Paul was still breathing and proceeded to shoot him one more time. And that was the fatal wound that ended Paul Masters' life. And like we were saying before, all the things that led up to this point, I mean, talk about like a series of events where if he had just jumped the fence in another yard, if he had just refused the beer, if he just went home, how different things would have been. If if even maybe, let's just say... Fentress's stamp collection wasn't stolen and he wasn't already enraged by the local uh, youth who, who would have said that this probably might not have happened either, you know? You know, we talked about this just all mounting up little by little. There was something that Fentress did a few days prior to the killing that he later admits to that lets us know, Chris, that this wasn't the first time he's thought of doing something like this. And it's interesting because he actually, like you said, prior to this... What leads us to believe or, or actually know that he was thinking about this before was he wrote a script for torturing and killing somebody just a mere two days before it happened. So, I mean, that's premeditated, isn't it? Well, you would think. Perhaps but, uh, not to that individual, but. But what we come to find out is that the courts don't see it that way. And we're going to get into that. So, you know, let's get back to this unfortunate event here. It's at this point now that Paul Masters has passed away from the wounds. Albert then tries to call a friend of his who happened to be a lawyer, and he admits that uh, he had killed someone, and his friend is trying to get you know the information as to what 
happened here. Perhaps it was an accident or not. And Albert said, no, this was not an accident. So he advises Albert to call the police. And that's what Fentress does. So the police arrive, and after they have Albert in custody, they see the gruesome crime scene. And it's at this point that this essentially is on its way to becoming worldwide news. Clearly he had come to realizing what he did and was thought it was despicable to the point where he admits that this whole thing, but that script that he wrote out, he burned it because he couldn't stand to read it after he had you know, written it, thinking of how, how horrific. So it's almost like he's having an internal battle here with himself on morals. How could anyone do something like this? But then yet he goes through with it anyway. So it's almost like that evil within just taking over. So now Chris Fentress is in custody, and it's at this point that he's given a court-appointed lawyer, and they begin to come up with their plan as to how they're going to handle this whole situation. They proceed at the trial, which took place in February of 1980, plead not guilty by reason of insanity. They claim that Fentress was suffering from something called dissociative fugue. And I had never heard of this term before. So uh, let me just give you a brief definition of that. Dissociative fugue is a psychiatric disorder characterized by amnesia coupled with sudden unexpected travel away from the individual's unusual surroundings and denial of any memory of his or her whereabouts during the period of wandering. Dissociative fugue is a rare disorder that is infrequently reported. You know damn well that the defense attorney is defending him so that he'll see the least amount of prison time or no prison time at all and just psychiatric care. So you have got to know that the lawyer is feeding him, you know, you know, this is a perfect situation for an insanity plea. Say this, don't say that. So, you know, I, I can't give... Fentress the benefit of the doubt here and say that it that it was insanity. So yeah, it is convenient. And I find it also convenient. I think that his treatment ended shortly after his sentence. And that's exactly what I wanted to bring up because we come to find out that Fentress only receives antipsychotic medication while he was in jail waiting for his trial. And that was probably required by the system itself or the doctors within that prison system. And that was the last time he's been on any antipsychotic medications to this day. Unfortunately, Chris, at the end of the trial, it was decided that Fentress was declared not guilty by reason of insanity. Can you believe that? No, and I bet the family is even more sickened by it. Someone not getting, you know, justice for such a despicable act, you know, especially for the family, you know, that, that's got to that's gotta hurt. The public shares their, their thoughts about this. They're as outraged as, as the family is. Even, I don't know if everyone remembers, probably not unless you're from New York, Governor Pataki, he even says justice can never be achieved as long as individuals like Albert Fentress can commit vicious crimes and hide behind an insanity plea to avoid the prison time they deserve. Chris, after he is sent to the Hudson River Psychiatric Center, he becomes a model patient. So much so that he begins teaching classes at the hospital, helping staff. The staff say he's essentially the best patient that they have in the whole hospital. Mm, how lovely. 
So he had done so well that he went from a maximum security psych center to being shipped down to more of a minimum security facility in Suffolk County, Long Island. And it was at this facility that he was granted more independence, Chris. He was actually allowed to walk the grounds, and the grounds themselves had no fencing. So he could have basically split at any time he wanted to, but he was at this point allowed to make supervised visits to malls, restaurants and whatnot, things of that nature. And they even pushed for him to have unaccompanied visits into the community. Apparently there were some psychologists and consultants that said that that he should be granted, or suggested anyway, that he be granted unaccompanied passes into the community because he was already doing it with an escort. And this was taking place in 1999, so this is 20 years after the crime. Albert has been in custody for 20 years. I mean, granted, yes, it is two decades since the crime took place, but my God, man, that, that, that's, that's pushing it. One doctor, though, actually says, because remember, he hasn't been on medication, right? He hasn't been on medication since pre-trial. The doctor says if he couldn't handle kids slashing his screens and burning his lawn, how could he possibly handle the likely public reaction to his release after he'd been demonized in the media as New York's own Hannibal Lecter? So basically saying, the guy's not on meds. You're going to release him out. And what's going to happen when he starts getting people publicly shaming him? And how, how is he going to be able to emotionally deal with that? Yeah. And, and remember, we said that he was diagnosed with dissociative fugue disorder. So who's to say that that can't reoccur? Right. And then whose responsibility is that? I would charge the motherfuckers who released him with murder. Absolutely. So part of this agreement that Fentress's lawyer was trying to obtain from him was that, as we said, he would be released and was supposed to be sent to a designated halfway house. And then after a certain time at that halfway house, he would then be released to move wherever he wanted to. And now get this, Chris. He would not even have a record because remember, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity and there was never a sexual assault charge brought against him. So therefore, he would not even have to have registered as a sex offender. Fuck that. So he would basically be walking away scot-free to live his life again 20 years after sexually assaulting, mutilating, and murdering a child. And 20 years in a comfortable environment, too, not in a prison. So, Chris, uh, hold on to your hat here, pal, because uh, the jury came back with their decision, and you're not going to believe this. They decided that Fentress should indeed be set free. Unbelievable. Could you imagine the outrage that the families, the police, anybody slightly related to this case, anybody with a kid must feel? So, as you mentioned what uh, Governor Pataki has said, he was completely against it. And uh, we have some other quotes here. And one who was in agreement with Pataki was the Dutchess County District Attorney, William Grady. He said, and I quote, This man is a cannibal. It is an utter outrage that a killer who is still mentally ill will be released into a community without supervision to wander about freely. It is beyond my comprehension. And I am inclined to agree with old Billy Grady here. And one more interesting quote from somebody who was retired and in that same industry, uh, a man by the name of Ozel 
Daniels says, and this is in reference to Fentress, he knows himself better than we do, but you fear them letting people like that back into the community. I worked at the hospital. They're never cured. Ooh, that is, uh, <laughs> that is a tough statement and uh, a very direct statement, huh? And for one that worked there. Yeah. You know, for somebody who has experienced it. So he's essentially saying that I would not trust uh, Albert Fentress on the outside. Yeah. And it seems that he's not the only one that thinks that way, Chris, because thankfully common sense prevails when state Supreme Court Judge Harry Seidel set aside the verdict, basically overruling it. And it was this decision that kept Albert Fentress in psychiatric care. And a good fucking thing, too, because... You got to think about this. The guy has been out of the element, out of out of that atmosphere for so long. Who's to say that if he's put back in that situation, that he doesn't just snap back into, you know, he's not around kids when he's being treated, right? So he's not put in a situation where he's going to be tempted. You just never know. You can't. You don't know. You know, it has to be a day-by-day thing. But talking about the crimes here, which are just above and beyond Anything that could be deemed normal. I mean, at this point, I think you would have to keep a watchful eye on this guy till the day he dies. There was actually another statement that was uh, released uh, from your twin, the Attorney General of New York at the time, Elliot Spitzer. Huh? Got anything like him? <laughs> he says, given the unspeakable crime which he committed and his mental condition, we feel Fentress remains a danger and therefore should not be released. Yes, I agree. So Fentress's lawyer then rebuts that by saying, once he's not dangerous, he's supposed to be let go. I think he's been ready for a long time. So All right, I mean, guy, then you can keep him at your place. Yeah, absolutely. I said, would you trust him with your kid? Leave him yeah, with your exactly. kid. exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It was at this point, Chris, that he lost the ability to uh, move into a less restrictive environment. Fentress's luck went from bad to worse upon not being able to be released to that halfway house, he was then transferred around a couple of different psychiatric hospitals, and it seems that he had lost a few of the freedoms that uh, he was receiving at some of the lower security places that he had stayed. He has constantly been applying for release through various hearings, and it seems at this point in time that Fentress is being held up at the Mid-Hudson Forensic Psychiatric Center in Northampton, Orange County. I say Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully that is where he will stay. Yeah, man. I mean, this is one of the most disturbing cases we ever covered. I mean, we couldn't possibly touch on everything, but there was more evidence coming out that this wasn't his first sexual assault attempt. There were two men that came out and said that Fentress sexually molested them back in 79, a mere few weeks before this uh, tragic event with Paul Masters took place. You can call this whatever you want, dissociative fugue or any other type of uh, disorder that you want. But the fact is that after that evidence came out, Fentress said that, uh, you know, I'm not going to deny it, but I can't say that I remember it. (laughs) So, I mean, again, I mean, this is just showing that he had a track record uh, of doing this or at least a desire to do this. And maybe there's more victims that just have not come uh, forward. So here we are, Chris, in the year 2021. And it's been 42 years since the murder of Paul Masters, and thankfully, he is still in custody till this day. 
and hopefully he keeps receiving treatment throughout the rest of his life. But uh, I don't feel that he should ever be released for the crime that he committed. No, I agree. So, I mean, that's it. That is the horrifying case of Albert Fentress, or as the media referred to him, New York's own Hannibal Lecter. My God, that was a tough one. I mean, this is Hudson Valley Horror Month Week 2, and uh, I'm already drained. Yeah, that was a tough one. What kind of sick area do we live in? You just never know. You really don't. <laughs> no, you don't. But uh, I, th- I think uh, next week maybe we do something a little lighter and uh, dive into some hauntings. What do you say, pal? I, I'm all for that. <laughs> so uh, with all that said, Chris, let's give the rundown and get the hell out of here because I have probably uh, three or four weeks of editing uh, to take care of for this episode. <laughs> You want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us on Instagram, uh, the Between the Cracks podcast. And I got to say, Chris, uh, we've been getting a few more followers on Instagram from all around the world, I might add. Oh, look at us. Yes. So what else? Uh, also, if you'd like to become one of our lovely patrons, that link will be in the show notes. Uh, take a look at the tiers. What can I tell you? I'm not going to keep uh, keep pushing it. Click on the link and find out what we got. Uh, Merch, teespring.com. The link for that will also be in the show notes. And uh, if you want something, buy it. What the hell can I tell you? Uh, So without any further ado, Chris, this room is now about 145 degrees, and I got to get the hell out of here. I'm done for the night. So what do you say we wish to find, find people out in podcast land? The fondest. Oh, a farewell. Boy, hey. Woof. (laughs) <laughs> All right, bro, thanks. <laughs>